it's good to see everyone uh, as we uh, gather for another Sunday uh, studying uh, God's Word, specifically uh, the Gospel of Mark. You can be turning there, where uh, we've been for the past few weeks. And Mark's Gospel, well, well before we get there, this is the thing with Mark's Gospel and where we're going to go. Today what we're going to see is this reality that many of us have found to be true over the course of our lives. And it is this, is that stress... Uh, pain, difficulties, whatever it is you you might be going through, uh, these things have a way of bringing out the truest part of who you really are. Like the stress, pain, whatever it might be, those things that like rattle us away, we, sh- we, we kind of reveal who we actually are underneath all of it. I mean, you, I, I did not know at one level, I did not know my wife until I saw her in childbirth like three years ago. There was a completely, I'm like, oh, this is a part of you. I'm, this is, I've never seen, right? Um, other little daily things, like when you have projects on work that get labeled on top of labeling, that the to-do list goes on, there is a part of you that comes out that is, that is so real, that goes deeper than who you actually are. Whether that's toddlers screaming at you, which has been a regular occurrence with our three-nager, um, or just like appliances breaking. I know for me, there is this, uh, the most Ryan part of me, the parts that, that I don't like but exist within me happen when technology doesn't work. Like when like, I've, I haven't done anything to change the router and now the router has decided that it doesn't work. And so I'm crawling in like the, our little like media thing and I'm trying to figure this out. Like when my phone just decides that my SIM card is invalid, it's been doing that for months now where I'll just be like using my phone normally and it just goes, oh, your SIM card is not like here anymore. Uh, I, it just, it brings out a part of me where there's anger, there's vitriol. It's this like essential part of me that comes out. For some of you, you go through the, uh, the end of the, your semester and finals are looming. Hell hath no fury like a student who has slacked all semester and now doesn't know what to do. Any of us, we can put on a nice face, but all that pretense fades away the moment that we step into a car here in the city of Los Angeles. No one is nice anymore. Anybody can be patient, but after two or three laps around the block looking for a parking spot, all patience is gone, and all that remains is anger. I, we experienced this, this week, uh, earlier this year. Aaron and I uh, went with her family and our daughter uh, to Disney World. And we all saw the most raw, essential components of one another's personality. There is something that Florida heat and humidity does to a human being as they stand on the surface of the sun in line to see Winnie the Pooh wave, and then they keep going. Like this is, it brings out a part of us that we can't pretend anymore. Like we just hate one another, and that's who we are. We just can't pretend. The thing is, you don't really know someone until you've seen them under pressure. And so as we continue in Mark's gospel today, uh, we're looking at the story of Jesus Christ through Mark's biography, his gospel of the life of Jesus. And today we get, right as his ministry starts, a moment of Jesus under pressure where we get a revelation and we get to see who Jesus is when you chip and break the shell away at who Jesus actually is. And so today we're going to be in Mark uh, chapter 1, just two verses today, 12 and 13. It'll be on the slides behind me, but some of you have your Bibles that you want to turn to or, or turn them on. Uh, or your little journals that we've kind of given away, if you have one of those. Mark 1, 12 through 13. Two verses, but so much going on. Let's read this together, and then we'll pray. Where <clears throat> Mark records, The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted, or some of your translations might have tested by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Let's pray. 
Well, Father, we see uh, here in this story, uh, we continue to examine the life of Jesus and what it means to follow him, to walk in his footsteps, as it were. And so we pray that you would help us today to see something in this wilderness story about ourselves, to see something about Jesus, and once again, like each week, to see why we need someone of substance like Jesus and what he offers us. So I pray that you would speak to each and every one of us. I pray for the Christians here that you might encourage us in what it means to follow you and follow your son. For those that are here that are doubting and skeptics or don't identify as a Christian for whatever reason, that today just might be a little bit more of the aperture opening on the person of Jesus and why he is so worth following. Be with us today. And we pray. Amen. Cool. Well, like I said, uh, we are in Mark's gospel, and we're kind of dividing this book up into these little mini-series over the course of the next year. And right now we're in one called Following Jesus, where last week we looked at following Jesus on the way. We looked at the baptism story of Jesus and who he is and what his way is and what he's inviting us into. And next week we're going to look at following Jesus uh, into his kingdom and his ministry. And today we're right here in the middle where we're following Jesus into the wilderness, You might look back over the verses that we just read in verses uh, 12 and 13, where Mark repeatedly uses this word wilderness. He uses it twice, right back to back. And one of the good things about, you know, reading the Bible, if you're trying to figure out how to do that, is just ask questions a lot. Why? Why here? Why now? Why this word? And you see wilderness back to back. And so it must be Mark's, you know, thinking something here. Thinking, but he's sitting here writing papyrus, right? He's got limited space. He's got arthritis. He's just like tired of writing it, writer's cramp, and he's having to work it up. And he, he decides to write wilderness twice, back to back, right next to each other. Repetition in the Bible is before they had underlining in italics and bold, repetition is how they would, we catch our attention. So he's getting at something here in this wilderness language. And what we're going to see today is, um, as you'll see on the slide behind me, kind of where we're going, the big, the big theme, as it were, in these two verses, is that this week as we continue in this following Jesus stories, we're following Jesus into the wilderness, And specifically what we're going to look at today is how the wilderness is a place of testing temptation, which we've kind of made into one word, which you'll see more of why in a minute, but also this place of triumph if we follow Jesus into that place. It's a place of testing and a place of triumph. A good uh, quote that summarizes uh, much of what we're going to look at today comes from Ruth Haley Barton, which you'll see this uh, behind me, where she writes, Our spiritual journey must lead through the wilderness or else our healing will be the product of our own will and wisdom. Our spiritual journey must lead through the wilderness, or else our healing will be the product of our own will and wisdom. It is in the silence of the wilderness that we hear our dependence on noise. It is in the poverty of the wilderness that we see clearly our attachments, our attachments to the trinkets and baubles we cling to for security and pleasure. The wilderness shatters the soul's arrogance and leaves body and soul crying out in thirst and hunger. In the wilderness, we trust God or die. Happy Sunday. <laughs> so why don't we look back in Mark and let's, let's, let's look at the story in the wilderness. Look with me in verse 12. Where What does he write? Well, last week in verse 11, we just had Jesus get baptized. He comes up out of the water and the heavens open and the spirit descends, it says, like a dove. And this voice of the father speaks over Jesus. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And the spirit, almost as soon as he rests on him, it says that the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. It's this immediately, which is one of Mark's favorite words. Like I was telling some of the folks when we were praying that Mark's gospel, he uses immediately over 40 times 
in this little, you know, tiny little book, 40 times. Immediately, he's jumping from thing to thing. And so almost as soon as he comes out of the water, the spirit leads, drives is the word, throws him out into the wilderness. So these two words together, there's a sense of urgency within Jesus' movement towards the wilderness, of priority, of almost obligation. The spirit launches him into the wilderness. And here in the wilderness, he's there for 40 days. Now, this wilderness, like we pointed out, this temptation, testing, triumph, what's going on here? When Mark writes wilderness, he's developing this wide range of meaning, even in the Greek word that he's writing in, where it can be translated as the desert. Wilderness can be translated as a deserted place, as a desolate place, Mark will use multiple times in his gospel, as a lonely place, as a quiet place, as a solitary place. Or one of my favorites is just simply as solitude. So the Spirit, immediately after baptism, Jesus launches out by the Spirit into solitude, into the desert, into the wilderness. And Mark loves to link these themes. He's calling our attention, and, and wilderness is going to become a huge thing within Mark's gospel as you read through it. This, this the way he does, again, when you're writing stories like Mark, it's not that he's just writing some email of getting us the basic details. He's using poetic imagery and language to pull us into and begin to see connections. And so throughout the story, whenever you see a boat, somebody's going to fail in Mark's gospel. <laughs> It's just like, it's this, this language that he uses. At every single time there's a boat in Mark's gospel, somebody is going to get tested and fail, right? Every time you're in a house, anytime he talks about being in a house, there's something secret that at one point is later gonna be revealed. And the wilderness is this language of testing and solitude. And so what he wants us to do is he's developing this theme because it's one that continues out of Jesus's family story, the Old Testament, out of the story of Israel. So just ask yourselves, and you'll see what he's doing here. Where else in the story of, of Israel, in the Old Testament, in the Bible, Jesus' Bible, the Old Testament, did we find one who's referred to as a son of God who went through the waters, then go through the wilderness in order to be tested or tempted for a period of 40 days, years, 40 years? Anybody? Where's my Bible nerds at? Anybody? Israel and the Exodus, Right? Those of you that are like, I have no idea. Deuteronomy chapter eight, look with me on the slides where Moses says, and you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years, interesting, in the wilderness, hmm, that he might humble you by testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and feed, fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Any of those that have read Matthew's account of Jesus' temptation, this is what Jesus is quoting from. Jesus knows he's going through the same story. Your clothing did not wear out on you. I wish I could have that happen. And your foot did not swell. I have like jeans that just, it, like my wallet is like permanently shows itself in there. You're, you're nothing worn out. And your feet didn't swell. None of us know what that's like anymore because we have shoes. But your feet did not swell those 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, hmm, the Lord your God disciplines you. He tests you. You see that what, what, what Mark's getting at here in telling the story of Jesus this way, using this language of 40 days, you know, that, that all of these things, whatever's going on here is that Mark is connecting us or the spirit, whatever language you want to use for it, that Jesus is going into the wilderness, we're meant to be going, oh, it's like Israel. That there's, a new there's another testing going on here. 
God being leading his son 40 you know, periods of time in the wilderness. Something's going on here. It's a design pattern, like an overture in a movie that, that plays and you immediately begin to, you hear the da-da-da and it comes out and it connects you to what's been happening at other points in the movie, right? Um, Star, we're going to talk about Star Wars <laughs> like we always do. All good theology goes back to Star Wars. I guess Star Wars always goes to good theology. Um, so Star Wars, you have um, like... Um, uh, Leia's overture that gets introduced um, really strongly in Empire Strikes Back. And then like, here we are watching like Rise of Skywalker, which we can argue about whether or not you like that later. But there is a, a moment where Leia's not on screen, but I hear Leia's overture playing. And even with it, there's a connection, right? That I'm, I, I connect back to the previous movie. Or maybe another way to put it with Star Wars is um, every single time we're on a desert planet, and I see someone riding a speeder across the horizon of a desert planet. I go, that's the hero, right? So Luke in A New Hope, he gets in the little land speeder with C-3PO, and it, it sets the pattern. And then we go back to the prequels, which that's a whole other conversation with the pod race. And there's a moment where we see Anakin and his little pod racer going across the desert planet horizon. And then at the beginning of The Force Awakens, we see Rey on her speeder going across the desert horizon, right? It's a design pattern that every single time without saying, this is the hero, you're going, ah, and you don't even know you're doing it. That's what Mark's supposed to be doing here for a culture that they grew up reading the Old Testament story. They go, ah, this is the new, this is the new test. This is the new son of God. This is the new movement of slavery into the promised land. Well, let's see how the test goes is the question. Is it going to be like Israel where they whine and complain the whole time? Or is something different going to happen? So it's meant to, to, to spur that within us. So the Jewish scriptures have prepared us to read, or have prepared Mark's audience to see, wilderness equals testing. But Israel was tested and they failed. And so the question that's running with Mark's audience, Jewish people, is, I wonder what's going to happen to this Jesus guy. Is this just going to be another Israel where they're going to complain that they get you know, tired of manna or whatever? So the question is, well, what is Jesus' test? How will he go through it? And what will this test reveal about him? If the test revealed that Israel would not be obedient to God, what will the test of Jesus reveal about who he is? And so then that's where Mark continues, where he says not just that the Spirit led him into the wilderness, but in the wilderness he was being tempted by Satan. Now, we have so many things here that are going on here. Uh, one thing is just noticing that it's really interesting that Mark when you read Matthew and Luke's account of this story of the temptation, that Matthew and Luke give grand detail of the conversation between the Satan and Jesus going back and forth, where turn these rocks into bread. And he's like, no, you know, and he quotes from Deuteronomy. And he goes, you know, jump from the high place because the angels are going to catch you. He goes back. Mark just goes, he was tempted. <laughs> and then he moves on. And so what Mark's focus is less on is more of the, um, the, the, the details around temptation and more about the experience of it, that it is a reality for Jesus. He just says that he was tempted. And so these two words, tempted by and then Satan, is, is there's a lot going on there. Um, and so why don't we just take a moment and you guys can Greek out with me um, is, is the way that, that we'll put that. Um, and so when Jesus, when it says that he was tempted, what's interesting is when we think of tempting, what you're prone to think of most likely is... Um, uh, we watch a lot of princess movies in my house right now, is Snow White, right? And the lady with the apple. And it looks good, but, you know, inside of it, you know, it's going to kill her or whatever. It's such a dark for, like, why am I letting my three-year-old watch this? Um, and so you've got the apple that she's holding out there, and it's, it's this, like, tempting, like, or we think of, like, seduction or someone who's offering something that, like, well, no, I really shouldn't. And there's some level where that's what's going on with tempting, but within the Greek... 
this Greek word perazzo, which you can say if you want to. It's really fun. There you go. You're learning Greek today. Um, so you can use this this week when someone offers you something that you know you shouldn't have. Is um, There's a larger range of what's going on here than just like seduction. There's language of like an examination, of a trial. It's actually tempting is far more about attempting something. It's about testing something that to prove the metal of what's going on with this thing. And so it seems as if what Satan is doing, the Satan, more on that in a second, is less of this kind of like, you know, I'm offering you all the kingdoms of the world, but I've got the hidden dagger behind me. And he's more coming to Jesus, testing who this Jesus guy really is. Is he like David? Is he like Israel? Is he like all of his grandparents and grandparents and grandparents? Is he going to choose the easy way out when it comes to establishing the kingdom of God and in doing so failing to establish the kingdom of God? Who is this Jesus guy really is what I think Satan's trying to figure out. Now, Satan, goodness me. Uh, This is specifically done by, uh, one, Satan is not his name. Uh, We do this in the English translations, and it's okay because it helps, but it's it's the Satan uh, in the Greek and in the Hebrew, Hasatan. It's a title. It's not a name. And even devil is not a name. It's a title, the devil and so the Satan is the adversary. The devil is the accuser. The, the thing that the New Testament and the scriptures do is they never give a name to this personal evil that's at work in the world. They give titles to it. They don't even use pronouns other than it at times. And so the whole language that's going on here is there is something that is personal, and yet it is, what is it? It's, it's the adversary. It's the enemy. It's the thing that's against everything and for nothing. It's the thing that's hell-bent, literally, on twisting a good creation in on itself. And so in some way, this person, this, this Satan, the devil, meets Jesus here in the wilderness to test, to bring out who he really is, to tempt him. Specifically, if you want to read through Matthew 4 or Luke 4 this week, you'll see what those arguments are. And the thing is, is that none of those things that Satan offers him are not things that he technically already is going to get. It's will he take the easy way where he doesn't have to go through the cross, which is just so profound. He offers him all of these things that Jesus already has or will have if he continues in the way that he's going. And so Satan doesn't offer him an apple that he's not going to get. It's something that, it, will you get it the way that God is inviting you to get it, or are you going to take an alternative means? And so for some of us here, you don't believe, you're going, okay, I already have a hard enough time with God, let alone Jesus, let alone Hasatan, whatever that is, and some kind of evil personal being at work in the world, spirits and demons, Oh my, come on. Here's what I would say. A few things, but for now. For those of you that say that, I would just acknowledge um, or ask you to acknowledge that that's fine if that's where you're at right now or just where you're at. Um, But it's worth acknowledging that you are in the minority historically within the human race and globally within the human race. And it would just be wise to kind of test yourself that we don't have a kind of a, a snobbery or an elitism against other people groups or people that have gone before us that you think you've got it all figured out and maybe they were on to something that you haven't seen. Just an offering. And so what we're going to do in the spring is at some point uh, I'm going to do a little fun uh, theology kind of class thing uh, on the devil, demons, unclean spirits, and the spiritual realm um, that's going to be really fun. But there's more there than what we can do on a Sunday, Right? But in the meantime, if you're like, whatever, I don't know about this, there's a couple of resources, collectivechurch.com slash resources. There's a podcast and a little video that just to begin to kind of whet your appetite around thinking about some of these things that you can go check out. But the main thing is what 
Mark wants to do is he's just introducing us to this character, the Satan, and we're going to get more about him and who his cronies are and what he's doing in the world as the story progresses. The main thing that Mark's getting at is not so much the the presence of this Satan guy and who he is. We're going to find that out more later. The main thing that he's getting at is that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness so that he might be tempted by this Satan character. He's revealing the idea that this wilderness is a place of testing, but also uh, what shows up in temptation, that testing reveals what's going on within our hearts. That the wilderness for Israel revealed who they really were, what's really going on under the hood, and that's what's happening with Jesus right here. And in one way uh, to talk about it is that testing in the experience of Israel and Jesus and you and me, and we'll get into that in a minute, operates kind of like an ultrasound which might be weird, but I was in one on Friday, not for me. Um, some of you might know, uh, my wife Erin is expecting our second, uh, which is really fun, but our whole life is gonna change. Um, and so anyway, we um, had been waiting and waiting. We've done a couple ultrasounds so far. Um, and so the due date is like the second week of May. So we're like, we got at the range now where we can look around in there and kind of see what we're getting. Um, <laughs> is that a weird way to put it? Uh, so anyway, we were able to uh, get the gender test. Um, I didn't tell you I was going to say this. <laughs> I just decided to. Um, <laughs> it's like ultrasound. Um, so anyway, here's, the, here's what's crazy. is we're, you know, We got the weird, Emma was sitting in my lap while this was happening, so you squirt the weird jelly. Um, and then you've got this little you know, ultra, the, the wand that you go over the stomach with. And this little thing blows up on the screen what's going on inside the stomach, this mystery that we felt like kicks and stuff like that, this thing that's made my wife sick every single morning, we go, oh, that's what the thing is, right? It's this little, you know, dastardly being. Um, and what, what happens is that's the time we get, we get this revelation, and then even for us, here's the, the, the those of you that care, um, we found out that we're having a boy, um, which is really exciting. Two for two, we got a both now, so we're, we can punch out, yeah. Um, <laughs> um, and so anyway, uh, so I, the, 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 as silly as that is, is when you think of wilderness, when you think of testing and we're an experience and talk about more of this in a moment, but the whole time is the whole point of wilderness testing, what Jesus is going through right now, what you go through when you go through wilderness moments is it's an ultrasound in a weird way, not physically, but it, it is a, a revealing of what's always going on inside of you. It's, it becomes a little more, uh, it's on the screen right in front of you, as it were. And so what do I mean by this wilderness, that, that this is something not only that Jesus goes through, but that what we do? This is a test that we go through that reveals what's going on, and it's something that we all go into. A uh, quote from Dallas Willard in his uh, Spirit of the Disciplines, which is required reading in my opinion. Um, he writes this. Um, so remember, wilderness and solitude are synonyms, right? So when we read solitude, you can just read this as the wilderness, and I might even do that because it's more fun. He writes, solitude or the wilderness carries its risks. In solitude, in the wilderness, we confront our own soul with its obscure forces and conflicts that escape our attention when we are interacting with others. Thus, solitude is a terrible trial, for it serves to crack open and burst apart the shell of our superficial securities. How's that for a sentence? It opens out to us the unknown abyss that we all carry within us, and it discloses the fact that these abysses are haunted. You and I... Jesus as well, everyone has wilderness moments where the ultrasound gets turned on, the shell is cracked as it were, and who we really are comes forward. For us, this might be a literal physical wilderness where you go on like, you know, a camping retreat and you have to, you like, 
just be in the silence of not having Instagram in front of you 24-7, you begin to start having panic attacks about who you actually are as that comes up. Like, that's why road trips, we always now are just like, I need the podcast, I need the playlist, I need the audio book, because God forbid I sit in the silence and think about who I am for more than five minutes. <laughs> or it might literally just be moments and seasons of life where things get quiet and still for a moment, where for whatever reason, ambition grows cold, where compulsivity doesn't have an outlet anymore, where we have a hunger that can't seem to be satisfied. We have nothing less than humility in front of us because our masks don't fool anyone anymore and we have to face ourselves for who we truly and really are. In the wilderness, there's no society, there's no job, there's no, there's, it's you by yourself and you gotta deal with who you are when you come into the wilderness. And so these moments can be spurred on by the leading of the Spirit. It can be a breakup. It can be a job loss. It can be a death. It can be divorce. It can be relational fallout, an ongoing sickness, a failure, or just settling into your life. The seven-year itch or whatever. The, you get into your career, the path that you'd wanted for years, and you come to a, you know, it's another Monday that you walk in and you're like, oh my gosh, this is what I'm doing with the rest of my life and the ambition grows cold, the compulsivity ends, and you're just kind of looking at yourself in the mirror. Every single one of us have moments of life where we go into the wilderness, and the deep curvature of our souls is revealed as we face our demons and dance with the devil. I've had, I mean, we all have had so many. One in particular was uh, in Aaron and I's first year of marriage, and I'm just now feeling comfortable talking about this in public, and it was seven, eight years ago was, uh, so we got married in Georgia and uh, was interning at a church there and kind of like, this was the career path. This is what I wanted to do. I'm so excited. Woo! We get married. Opportunity comes for like this dream internship up in Seattle, which at time, this big, you know, mega church thing was like the mecca of opportunity, especially for somebody that wants to do the, the church thing with their life. And so we get up there and we're going for a few months and Seattle's good. Um, the weather's, you know, awful, but it, it, it made us fall in love with pho. And so that was good. And so, you know, I'm working at the church, we're doing the internship thing, and over the course of a few months, uh, this need and desire and compulsivity to belong here on this church and to get the role that I wanted or whatever ended up backfiring on me to where it was like, oh, yeah, we're not going to bring you on staff, you're not getting a job, and, you know, you know, you know you're still welcome to be here and kind of intern if you want, but that, that pathway that you thought you had is not going to happen. So I had to start looking around for other work. Uh, over the course of a month and a half, put out 100 resumes, 100 plus, actually, I lost count at 100, um, only had two interviews and no offers. And so Seattle was like, oh no, what have I done? And so I couldn't find any roles within church stuff, and so design was another one of my like, really big outlets for a while within work, and so found a job pretty quickly in Missouri, which is where I'm originally from, so got the job, we moved back, okay, things are okay now, um, but I'm done with the church thing. I'm just gonna kind of like attend, right, and just kind of show up. Um, but I'm not going to be the Bible guy or anything like that because that's insane. Um, and so we get home, we get into the job. I settle into, okay, now this is where my ambition's going. It's not the church thing. Now it's going to be the work thing. And so we're able to move into like our dream home where we're going to rent it while we finish being able to, to buy it from our friends. They let us rent from it. So we move in. We have a big party, barbecue with everybody over. The Smiths are back from Seattle. That was a big, you know, uh-oh, right? But they're here now. <laughs> And this is great. The Smiths are in Springfield, hometown. All of my friends from high school are over. We're hanging out. And I'm like, this is it. This is my life. This is safe. And this is comfortable. I walk into work the next day and I get laid off. This is all over like one year of marriage. It's a miracle. Uh, we made it. 
And so once again, like, I lose the design job. I lose the dream house. We have to move out and move across town into, like, a house that we were not stoked on having, but we had a house. And so I had a layoff, looking for work, can't find any design work now. I'm definitely not going back to the church thing. And all I can find is, is the coffee shop thing. And I'm like, okay. So I'm back at the coffee shop thing where I was in high school. Okay. And it wasn't Blue Bottle. For those of you at Blue Bottle, you guys are cool. This was like <laughs> Mama Jean's coffee. Um, we had a really good juicer, though. Uh, and so here I am. I'm, I'm like within less than a year, I have gotten married and like had the anticipation of here it is, the big thing, the thing I've always wanted, losing that. And then losing thing after thing, and it felt like everything had been stripped away. I remember, uh, <laughs> this might be too much, when I, lost the, when I lost the job, I hadn't been there long enough to get uh, any, um, what's the word? Severance. severance. Uh, but one of our clients was a moonshine distillery. <laughs> and so that was my severance, was a moonshine bottle. <laughs> and, so, and we only had one car at the time. And so I'm sitting on the side of the road crying, <laughs> calling my wife, holding a bottle of moonshine. I just look like an insane person. <laughs> That was, there was this moment of me, and that's when I broke, and I was in the wilderness. I had no more compulsion, no more ambition. I had nothing other than who I actually was, and all of it was right there in front of me, and it was so discouraging and ugly, and every single one of us have been in moments like that, and, and the wilderness movement is the thing that we have to go through, where we really see, and, and almost the people around us really see who we actually are, where our enemy, as it were, that he even sees who we really are. Well, when you get down to it, I, my deepest priorities, they all float to the surface. And the way that they float to the surface is in the form of temptation and desire. So when you lose everything, where do you run to? That's, so temptation is part of the testing simply because it's what your heart wants in the moment where you don't have anything silly to cling to anymore. In the wilderness, in solitude, I am no longer who I know or don't know. I am no longer what I do or don't do. I am not what I say or don't say. I am who I am in all of its terrifying truth. Where we see our anger, our betrayal, our, our desire to uh, medicate ourselves, uh, to, to just disappear, to whatever it might be, to satiate desire, the deep romance, like when you get to the bottom of that and you go, you know what the problem is? The problem is that I'm single. None of this would have happened. Or the problem is my marriage. That that, this, none of this would have happened. No, those moments, what you cling to, Martin Luther says, that's your God. It reveals the desires that we have to be worshipped for success, for reputation. For me, there was perfectionism, using the church as a ladder for a desire to be loved, for me to have marriage be this thing that I had safety, for leadership to be how I knew that people respected me and loved me. All of these things got shown. The wilderness strips away all false pretense and reveals who we are, and it's not pretty. David Foster Wallace, he's a novelist. Uh, he wrote Infinite Jest, which is too big, so this quote's small enough that we'll do that instead. He writes, the truth will set you free, but not until it's finished with you. We all go into wilderness seasons where the truth is revealed. And the thing is, is most often, as most of us begin to see who we really are, we just run back into the city and we try to find a new mask. We try to find more fig leaves to put on that'll cover the fear, shame, and guilt of who we actually are underneath it all. For others, the invitation of Jesus is that we continue to walk into the wilderness, we let it do its work of showing us who we really are so that we can actually put our eyes on someone who can do something about it. 
You see, the wilderness test cracks us open. It reveals the truth about who we are by how we respond and what temptations we run after. And that's what makes Mark's account and Matthew and Luke's and the story of Jesus so profound is wilderness does the same work to Jesus. It cracks him open the shell. It shows us who he really is. And what's going on underneath the hood is precisely the exact same thing we saw in his baptism. How did Jesus' test go? All Mark tells us is the weirdest line in the world. What does he say? And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. What? So he went to the zoo? Like, what are you telling me? Like, so again, going back, good Bible reading is just ask why this, why here, why now? What are you getting at? Limited papyrus, writer's cramp. Why are you telling me about animals and angels, Mark? And so again, just like we did with Israel, you know, 40 days in the wilderness, we just ask, okay, what's another story where someone who's referred to as a son of God was tempted specifically in a place where there were animals and angels around. Anybody? Bible nerds? Genesis, Eden, Adam and Eve, right? So here we have, like, we're going, Mark's trying to call your attention to why animals? Where else in the animal? Like, there's a couple other connections you could make to the animal thing, um, but we won't go there because this one's my favorite. Is what it seems like, Mark, is why animals and angels together is we don't see them coming together very regularly throughout the Old Testament, but one of the places that we do, specifically then when you bring the tempting thing into it, whether it's Hasatan or a serpent, is that what Mark's getting at is when the wilderness cracks open Jesus and the shell falls off and we see Jesus for who he really is, one, there's no shell. But as we take a closer look and wilderness brings out who Jesus really is, it's this new Adam. It's this new humanity. We're like back in the Garden of Eden that, that Adam... Adam, his name means man, mankind, human, as a representative of all of humanity, of you and me, that this story that patterns our own was there in the Garden of Eden. He's there with God, with angels, with fellow humans, with Eve, and with animals. There's this peace, shalom ideal where the wilderness with animals and angels is not a place of testing and triumph, but a place of shalom, of peace, of rest. Where it says that Adam and Eve were naked and without shame, and everybody always wants to bring in the, the language for this being like a sex talk. And that's totally there. Uh, but naked and without shame, there's, there's no hidden abyss. There's no masks. There's no hiding. There's no superficial securities going on in the Garden of Eden. There is shalom with animals and God and angels. But the twist in the story is that in Adam's story, his Eve's story, in you and me, is that we have all been misled and tempted by a certain and by Satan to distrust God by going out and claiming to know good and bad for ourselves, the very thing that God wants to train us up in. In the same way of Jesus having the kingdom and choosing, will I go with the way that God has or the way that I choose for myself? It's the same thing that you and I all do. And in the midst of this distrust has caused shalom to be shattered where we all have wilderness failings like Israel complaining in the wilderness, like Adam and Eve choosing to take from the tree of the knowledge of good and bad, like you and me each day choosing for ourselves how we're gonna live at a, the expense of trusting God. The result is that we all live east of Eden. You and I are all ducking for cover from one another, shielding our naked fear, shame, and guilt with leaves and masks. Adam and Eve were escorted out of the garden where Genesis 3 says that angels guard them from the life that was in the garden now. There's no more entry back in to the place where animals and angels are. 
And so the wilderness is the moment when the breath of God blows the weaves away and we have to see ourselves for who we really are. And that's what's happening here in the wilderness. And when Jesus is shown for who he really is, we crack him open when we see this new Adam, that there's no leaves here. The Jesus that we saw getting baptized in the Jordan River, the one that the Father calls his beloved son with whom I'm well pleased is exactly the same God, guy that's trusting, Jesus, trusting God in the wilderness. And now he's here with these animals and angels where the angels are no longer guarding him from getting in, they're ministering to him. And these animals are all around him. There's a new Adam, one who wasn't misled by the serpent, but one who defeats Satan. And this is the twist that then happens in the story of Jesus is that the wilderness no longer becomes the place of testing and triumph. Or maybe it still is, but through it, on the other side of it, that the wilderness is now the place of triumph, of victory, of something new that wasn't there before, something that we couldn't seem to stay in the wilderness long enough to get to, that because Jesus did, something's available to us that wasn't there before. And so the... the, the I, the, the whole thing is just that the wilderness is what we all have to go through. And the question is, are you going to, when you go into those seasons, and maybe you're in one right now, are you gonna stick around long enough that you find Jesus there and allow him to lead you through it? Or are you gonna run back to your masks? And the scary thing is, is that God loves us enough that he'll let us to keep, he'll keep bringing us back to the wilderness. He'll keep breaking the shell off until we find that we have nothing other than Jesus that we can rely on. But this new Adam who defeats Satan here, this becomes his place of triumph, where the wilderness becomes the place where, what's crazy is this same word shows up again and again and again throughout Mark, and we start translating it as the solitary place, where Jesus goes out to the wilderness to rest, to pray, to be with the Father. The same place that was so dangerous and was a place of temptation is now the place where he's able to be with the Father and rest, and, and the same is true for us. What's even cooler than that is, as we'll see throughout the rest of the story in the coming weeks, Jesus starts going around and he's engaging with these other spiritual beings, these demons and unclean spirits. And as one scholar puts it, every single time spiritual evil appears throughout the rest of Mark's gospel and into our lives today, they wear the faces of defeat. They're terrified when they see Jesus. It's because of the shift that happens right here. That what happens in the wilderness is the D-Day for the rest of Jesus' ministry. The beaches have been stormed. Germany's on the run. Yeah, maybe they're playing defense, but it's going to go down. And so this place of temptation and triumph was the first step towards Jesus' final wilderness. I don't know how to put this. I, I keep re rewriting this section because I can't figure out how to fit it. And so we're just going to try together right now. So bear with me. What's profound is that Jesus' life has these two temptation-testing wilderness moments where he gets set before him with the opportunity of will he commit to the way of God and trust him or is he gonna take the easy road out? We see it here in Mark chapter one at the beginning of his ministry where he has to choose, am I gonna trust God or am I gonna take another way out? And it happens again in another wilderness moment, another garden of temptation. At the end of his life, the night of his betrayal, the night of his trial, the day before, you know, his crucifixion, his death, is Jesus is once again in a garden. Once again, the shell is being cracked off and we're seeing Jesus for who he really is. Where he's being torn open from the inside out almost. Where, where literally he's sweating blood because what he's facing is not just temptation from the devil, but, but death itself in the cross. 
And he's, he's sent with the thing again. Once again, am I going to continue to trust God into this wilderness, into this test, in through this temptation and trust God? And that's what's so profound is that Jesus shows us. He starts praying, Abba. He says, Abba, Papa, Father, if there's any other way to go through this wilderness and the triumph on the other side, could you take this cup from me? And he says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He's praying, lead us not into temptation, but even if we do go there, deliver us from evil. Jesus displays this sort of thing that goes back to Ruth Haley Barton's, that the first wilderness, the one that all of us go through in order to begin the life of faith is that we have to learn that we are going to trust God or die. And the insanity is that Jesus' life brings us in a way that he himself has walked in that we have to trust God as we die while we trust in this resurrection triumph. For Jesus is the forerunner. He's the one that, you know, I don't, you know that we now look to. And so following Jesus through the little wildernesses of our life prepare us for the big wilderness that is our death, believing that just like there's triumph on the other side of each temptation and trusting God even when it doesn't make sense, that I can trust God even when I can't see the other side of death. I mean, this is the whole Christian life here. It's preparing us to trust God even in the midst of death and believing that Jesus' resurrection can actually do something for us. And so when your job loss or your, your relationship breakup or your failure, whatever that might be, you getting up again and trusting Jesus on one level is, yeah, good for here and now and prepares you and makes you a better disciple today, but it's also preparing you for death. Happy Sunday. <laughs> and so at the end of the day, what Mark's gospel is doing is he's beginning that this is what discipleship is. It's following Jesus even into testing and temptation with the belief that there's triumph on the other side, that there's new Eden. There's an eternal Eden ideal, a life that though it was lost by all of us is available again forever to all of us who follow Jesus through the wilderness test to see who we really are when everything gets stripped away and not to shudder and run from it and go back, but to stand there and acknowledge our deep need for someone who's got some substance out here in the wilderness and to see Jesus is the one who has that and follow him. And so what Jesus' triumph means for those of us who follow Jesus, what this means. One, that testing and temptation is part of following Jesus. When you go into the wilderness seasons, do not panic. There are some of you that just like, even as I'm beginning to know so many of you and still being a new pastor, but even just knowing your stories, there are some of you that are in wilderness moments right now where it doesn't make sense, where whether that's testing that's bringing out the, the raw components of you or a temptation that you feel like you keep having to say no to something and you can feel your energy going down, that this is part and parcel of what it means to follow Jesus. So don't panic, but be encouraged. That too, in your temptation, you are not alone. That not only is, is this, this part of following Jesus, but that Jesus has gone through this with you. The author of Hebrews chapter four, he writes, it's on the side behind me. For we do not have a high priest, that's language that he's using throughout his letter to talk about Jesus, the Son of God, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, with our wilderness moments, but one who in every respect has been tempted, tested as we are, and yet he was without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. So in your temptation, you're not alone that Jesus is with you and he knows what it's like to go through that temptation. Third, when you fail in the wilderness and you see yourself for who you really are, because of what Jesus has done, you're invited to get back up and keep walking in the wilderness way. 
that, that you going through the wilderness now is no longer pass fail, but is actually this insane rhythm where you get to like, that following Jesus becomes like learning to ride a bike. It's no longer a pass fail test, but like Jesus knows you're gonna fall over. That's why he went through the wilderness for you. And so every time you mess up, every time that you fail, when temptation does pull you and you see yourself for who you really are, you don't stay there or run from, you acknowledge, oh yeah, I need Jesus. And you allow the Father through the Spirit with the example of the Son to pull you back up on the bike and for you to keep pedaling. This time, maybe a few more pedals. And then you fall over. This is the, this is the Christian life. Fourth, that testing temptation is a vital step toward your next season of life. There is no direct flight from Jesus' baptism to him proclaiming that the kingdom is at hand next week. There's no direct flight from like they go through the Red Sea, woo, we're saved, and then they all like get on, you know, maybe not a Boeing, but they get on a plane and they fly. Some of you got that. They, they fly over to the promised land. We're here now. There's no direct flight. For Israel, it was through the wilderness. For Jesus, it was through the wilderness. For you and me, it's going to be through the wilderness. And the odds are on the other side of it, there is a greater mission and ministry and thing that you are called to do that you couldn't have done if you didn't go through the wilderness. Fifth, I've got a lot of them. Uh, Jesus, shows, Jesus shows a way that we're allowed to pray that we wouldn't be led into temptation and testing. In the Lord's Prayer, he teaches us, Lord, lead us not into temptation, which again, so wait, does Jesus tempt? That's a whole other conversation. The argument is that would be better translated as testing like we've looked at here. God, lead me not into the test, into the wilderness. And then it's not and deliver us from evil, but deliver us from evil is what he says. So God, I'm praying that you wouldn't lead me into temptation, but even if, if that's what you deem is the right thing for me, and you push me in that way, you lead me like in the spirit like you did with Jesus, would you still deliver me from evil? Not my will, but yours be done. So you, we can pray that way. But we pray at the same time, not my will. Deliver me from the evil one. Sixth and my final one. Solitude, the wilderness, you being alone with nothing to hide is no longer a thing to fear, but it's actually the place of strength. The upside down kingdom of Jesus is that our weakness is our strength and that solitude and silence and stillness when we're not doing or being or saying is actually the greatest place where we find our strength. And that's why Jesus kept going back to it over the course of his ministry where now instead of life taking our masks off, life blowing our leaves away, as it were, we allow our, we do that, we go into a space where we allow ourselves to do that. And if that sounds weird and terrifying, uh, beginning in Mark, we're gonna have a th- March, we're gonna have a three-week series on this spiritual practice as we start to see it in Jesus' life. So right now, this is the wilderness testing, and when we start going into solitude on a regular basis, we're gonna take a break and learn how to do that as a community. But more on that in March. And then finally, uh, we'll end with a quote, one more quote from, um, oh, Henry Nowen. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Um, so he's going to be quoting from Matthew and Luke's account of the temptation of what the, te- the tempting was in Jesus' response. So read Matthew and Luke. I'm not moving the rest of the sermon. Uh, and, then, and then we'll pray. Um, so he says this. Solitude, or the wilderness, is the furnace of transformation. Without solitude, we remain victims of our society and continue to be entangled in the illusions of the false self. Jesus himself entered into this furnace. There he was tempted with the three compulsions of the world, to be relevant, to turn stones into loaves, to be spectacular, throw yourself down, and to be powerful, I will give you all the kingdoms. 
There he affirmed God, Jesus did, as the only source of his identity. You must worship the Lord your God and serve him alone. The wilderness, solitude, is the place of the great struggle and the great encounter. The struggle against the compulsions of the false self and the encounter with the loving God who offers himself as the substance of the new. Wilderness moment that you're going through. Maybe it's what brought you to church for the first time in a long time. You are in the crucible of transformation if you find someone of substance there who can lead you in a way that you could not lead yourself. Let's pray.